prayers we need God's help to understand and apply his word. Heavenly Father, we so desperately need you. Not just because we may or may not have had a difficult week. Even on the best day and the smoothest sailing day we've ever had, we desperately need you. You give us our life and breath and everything. We give you thanks for that. We need to be dependent upon you in all things. As Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word to help us to better cling and trust you as our Lord and Saviour, the one that we follow all the days of our lives. Uh, so we encourage us, challenge us, and transform us by the power of your spirit as we look to your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. What do I need to do to lose 10 kilos? Five kilos. That's the sort of a question that lots and lots of people ask, and it's a massive billion-dollar industry. Usually when somebody asks that question, the answer they really would like to hear is something that is really easy and doesn't provide, not inconvenient in any way whatsoever. If it's like a tablet you can just take for a few weeks and do nothing else, that's the one we want to sign up to because that's easy and good. But yes, you're talking and you're consulting with your friends. You may have someone who gives you the answer, why don't you just try eating a bit healthier and making regular exercise part of your daily routine? And it's like, how long? What, for the rest of my life? That doesn't sound like a very fun answer. Give me the quick one. And even for some people, biologically, no matter what level of exercise and dieting, they're not going to be able to, to do that because of their body and things working against them. But imagine you go to a doctor and the doctor's answer is, it's impossible. It cannot be done. Today we're looking at a man who asks a very important question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And in simple terms, Jesus says, from man's perspective, it's impossible. Now in Luke chapter 18, in the section previous to what we're looking at here, there are two parables on prayer. Firstly, there's the parable of the persistent widow who, because she knows something of the merciful character of our God, persists in prayer knowing that our Heavenly Father loves to give to his children. Then after that, you see the contrast between a Pharisee and a tax collector who are praying. And we see something about the attitude that we should have as we come before God in prayer. In one hand, the Pharisee was praying pretty much along the lines of, God, you are so blessed to have me on your team. Look at all these wonderful things that I do for you. Whereas the tax collector had a very simple prayer, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when we read through that parable, it says only one of them went away justified. Now it wasn't, that is, only one went away in right relationship with God. And it wasn't the one who had a big list of achievements it was the one that understood they were a sinner and knew their only hope of a right relationship with God rested upon the mercy of God himself. 
The hearers who heard this reading would have been shocked. Like the Pharisees, they were the guys who did all the good stuff. And it says this tax collector that everyone looked down upon, he was the one who went away in the right side of God. So at first the Pharisees would have been shocked by hearing this. When we look at verses 15 to 17, we see that others are now shocked at something that Jesus is doing. Now normally when people look at the rich rich ruler, they begin to start at verse 18, but I think the little in between verses of 15 to 17 actually help us understand what Jesus is about to unpack as we look at the rich young ruler. People are bringing their babies or their infants to Jesus to touch him. Now the language here is of the youngest of the youngest, they're bringing them to Jesus. Now that says something of the character of Jesus for starters. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't normally just give my child to anybody. You kind of think, this is kind of precious to me. You don't just walk down the street and say, here, have my child. So if the Pharisees were previously shocked by what was happening with the tax collector, now look at the response of Jesus' own disciples. As they were bringing the infants to him, that he might touch them, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. They're like, no, don't bring little kids near Jesus. It doesn't give them the reason why they were so concerned about this. Well, they're thinking, don't waste Jesus' time with little infants, with little babies. They're not going to get anything he, he talks about or he teaches. They're saying, Is he, are they not valuable? They can't respond? Well, we don't know why they rebuked them. But as we often see, when the disciples kind of think they've got it all together and they start rebuking people for wrong actions, usually Jesus steps in and settles the matter. Jesus called to them, saying, Let the children come. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He says, Don't hinder these children coming to Jesus, because it is people just like them to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And the disciples were rebuking people for doing that. The disciples should have known better. Just earlier in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 9, Jesus, knowing the reasoning in their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, all is the one who is great. So it should have made sense that bringing children to Jesus is not a bad thing at all. But before we move on, a couple of things I want to say. Jesus wants to interact with and wants to be known by little children. It's a mistake when sometimes churches and churches programs think that we'll start talking to them about Jesus when they're a teenager and beyond. Jesus Christ is the most important thing to know him at every age in our life. And in saying that, what happens before our service, Sunrise Kids, our, our children's program, and the teaching they get over at Christ during the time of the sermon, that's not something insignificant in comparison to what's happening here. That's just as important. That we be raising them and teaching them in the, in the wisdom and knowledge of the Lord. 
But also, raising kids in the knowledge of the Lord is not just the sole responsibility of the church. It should be something that goes to complement what we are doing with our families and our children at home. Remember what the disciples said when people were bringing the children to Jesus? They said, don't. They were putting a hindrance in their way to stop them coming to Jesus. And it challenges me in my own heart about the extent to which we spiritually nurture our own children. Am I being a, a hindrance to them in the same sense with the, which the disciples were on that occasion? But what does he mean when he says, such like these, like babies, belong to the kingdom? Is he saying that because they're young, they're kind of innocent, therefore they haven't got much sin, that that's the kind of character you want in someone? Anyone with children knows that their kids aren't quite as perfect as that anyway. And you realise you don't need to teach a kid how to say no or mine. There's something by way of the sin nature. It's very clear at a very early age. They have it. But there are a number of positive traits about a child which I think Jesus is kind of hindering towards. Have you ever noticed when a kid gets something that they find so exciting, they get so enamoured with it, they get so thrilled by it, they just can't find their words. I remember when Kenzie got up, uh, she had a midday sleep at the day of her birthday party and we had jumping castles in the backyard. And she's like, I'm so excited. When they see great things, they have a sense of wonder and amazement. Children have a willingness to believe in entirety the things that they are told and, and to trust those things. And probably most fitting in the context, babies can't do anything by themselves. Babies are entirely dependent upon their parents for everything. They don't do anything. All they do is to simply accept the care offered to them by their parents. And it's no different when we come to Jesus Christ for salvation. It's not because I've done this and I've worked up my own good deeds. It's clearly saying, I need you and I'm desperately depending on nothing more than what you have done for me. But for those bystanders hearing Jesus say these words, they're like, receiving the kingdom like a child, what, what about adults? Do they do the same? As we look at verses 18 to 23, it's almost like this question, is there anything that I can do? Now we don't know if Luke has specifically ordered these events so that they fit together, so they follow the consistent theme. But in verse 18 speaks of a significant ruler who asks a very important question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One thing you'll notice throughout this passage interchangeably uses the term eternal life or entering the kingdom. To enter the kingdom is to enter into eternal life. As ruler, speaking of, to Jesus, says, what must I do? To enter into that kingdom suggests there's a king, there is a ruler, one to whom loyalty must be given to, and Jesus Christ is that king. This guy says, Jesus, you're the good teacher. Now, that would have shocked people reading that because nowhere in the historical records was any rabbi referred to as good teacher. They were referred to as teacher. But to call Jesus good teacher 
raised the bar to a significant level. Even Jesus questions his use of that term. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Now you've got two options what you do with a statement like that. The Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons will kind of take the angle of saying, see, Jesus is saying I'm not God. Because he says, don't call me that because only God is good. But I don't think that's the right way to think about what Jesus is trying to communicate. I think Jesus knows exactly what this guy said and and he's getting him to think about what he said. You have just called me good teacher. Only God is good. What are you re- who do you really say I am? What do you think I am? And to this good teacher, the ruler is asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So from his mindset, the idea is, there must be a list of things that I need to check off in order to get this eternal life. Because literally the way it is worded in the Greek pretty much is this, having done what will I inherit eternal life? What's the list? Just tell me the things I need to check off the list to enter into eternal life. It's a common question people get when they hear about the gospel message. They think, this whole Jesus and eternal life thing, that's, that sounds great. How, how do I get into it at a sort of low bar? What's, what's the minimum commitment to get these benefits? Do I just go to church every now and then? I can do that. I don't do anything else on a Sunday morning. Do I need to pray a particular prayer? Yeah, I'll do that. Do I need to live a good kind of life, be nice to people? Yeah, I I see value in that. But sometimes it's like, just don't make it inconvenient. Give me something that's accessible, simple. But as you ask that question, what must I do is completely the opposite to the faith like a child that Jesus has just spoken about. The faith like a child was one saying, I can't do anything, I'm 100% dependent upon what somebody else does. And he's saying, what can I do? As Jesus responds, you could easily think, I think he's playing to his question. He's about to give him a list of things to do. What's he doing? Because he says, you know the commandments... Presumably he's speaking of the ten because that's what he specifically quotes from. And then he lists a couple of them from the second half of those in terms of how we relate to one another. In Matthew's account we even have a question from the rule that specifically says, which ones, which of the commandments do I need to keep? So maybe there was not even an idea in his mind of, I'm not expecting you to say 100% but is, is like 50 or 60%, is that good enough to get this in the eternal life? Jesus' response, which might seem like he's playing into the hands of the question of the ruler, says, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honour your father and your mother. And the ruler said, all of these things I have done from my youth. He must have jumped for joy when he's heard this list. He's like, yep, yep, yep. Is that the list? Are you done? Yeah, clearly I'm in. But as Jesus points to the law, it's not because he thinks there's a checklist that you can accumulate enough points that somehow you can inherit eternal life. Paul tells us in Romans 3.20, what the law does is it makes us aware of our sin. 
it shows us that none of us can live up to that perfect standard of God. The way that Paul spoke to the Galatians says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. That's pretty harsh, Paul. For as it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all of the things written in the book of the law and do them. It says, unless you can do every single one of them, without fail, you are cursed. And then he goes on to say, and it's evident that nobody, not a single person, has been or will be justified before God by the law, because the righteous shall live by faith. It's pretty clear. This guy hasn't got a reason to be jumping for joy. After his proud statement of, yep, I've done all of these things since I was a little kid, Jesus turns the conversation a little bit, which highlights his failure. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. In that one sort of challenge, there's about three different things that he's completely undone with this guy. We see that he doesn't want to do this. He goes away sad. He's like, no, that's too much. Effectively, his money has become an idol. Anything that we will not give up or are not willing to give up to follow Jesus is something we consider to be more valuable than Jesus and is indeed an idol. The fact that he needs to keep it all to himself rather than give it to someone else, he's not real good at loving his neighbour as himself. And probably having some issues with the no coveting side of things. Now when Jesus says that to him, he's not putting out a universal command for all Christians. Every Christian, you must sell every single thing that you've got and give it to the poor. It was a specific challenge, a specific question to this man to highlight his attachment to his material things. Nor was it a statement or a command that stood alone. He doesn't just say, go and sell everything you've got and give it to the poor, and then that's it. That was the last thing you needed to do. Now we're all sweet. He says, and come and follow me. It was never about just do one more thing. It was about, this is highlighting just one area, just to show you how much you desperately need me. But I'm not just calling you to do things, I'm calling you to lifetime of following me. You'll notice you read through the gospel accounts, Jesus never asked anyone to tick a box to become a Christian. When Jesus called people, he said, follow me. He expected them to follow after him as a lifestyle, not just a list of doing particular things. This is the guy who asked, what do I need to do? I mean, now he's been challenged about his riches that he's placed in the place of God and he's told to give them up. When the rich ruler hears these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. Up until this point, he was keen. He wanted to know how to get eternal life. And with this one challenge, it says he was sad. And according to, to Matthew and John's record of this thing, and he went away. That was just too much. It was a deal breaker. Up until then, he said, he was like, I'll do anything. Just not that. You're asking too much. 
Now, I'm sure there are some people who read through this account and think, Jesus, why did you ask that difficult question? It was going so well until you did that. Because Jesus is Lord. means he is master. He is worthy of being first place in our life. He's the one who's given us life and breath and everything. Anything we are unwilling to sacrifice or give up for him is something that we value more than we value him. Whether it be riches, relationships, addictions, our favourite sin, anything we just might happen to love more might even be good things. Remember, Jesus made it pretty plain, plain beforehand. No one can have two masters. You can't just say, oh, I'll have it to Jesus, but I'm going to hold this thing up equally high. He says, no, in reality, what happens? You'll either hate one and love the other. You'll never serve them both. You can't. They are so diametrically opposed to each other. But it wasn't just the rich young ruler who was sad. I don't think Jesus was that happy about it either. In verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine how Jesus felt? Here he is. He's just talked about the greatest gift anyone could ever receive, to receive Christ himself, to be declared right in the sight of God, to enter into eternal life, enter in the kingdom of God, only to have someone turn around and say, no, I would rather something else than that. Jesus says it's difficult for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God and later on goes so far to say it's impossible from a human perspective to enter the kingdom. It doesn't mean that you can't be rich and enter the kingdom. There's a number of examples throughout the Bible of people who had a lot of money. Abraham was quite wealthy. Job was wealthy. Zacchaeus was wealthy. Joseph was wealthy. So why is it so difficult? Well, the type of faith that Jesus had been speaking about was faith like a child. Faith like a child that's not saying, this is my list of achievements. It says, I need what you do. I am totally dependent upon you and what you can do for me. And to highlight the extent of the difficulty, he gives a very famous illustration. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now you've probably heard that analogy and you've probably heard different explanations as to what he means by it. I've heard some people say that it's a, it's a really thick cable that was just really hard to get through the eye of a needle. Well, then there's a second one, which is probably the more common one that you've heard, the idea that it was a gate into one of the city walls and that they, the camels couldn't quite fit through it, so they had to take all the bags off them, and then they had to get down onto their knees and gravel their little way to get through into it like that. So the story that goes along with that camel situation is, it's not so much that it's impossible, but it's just really hard. you just got to do things a particular way. But do you want to know what the problem is with both of those two options? There is absolutely zero historical references to either of those ideas. As common as that camel taken off and squeezed through this gate, there's not a single historical reference to that. And not only that, that interpretation entirely misses the point. If that was the, the meaning it was supposed to be, Jesus would be saying, 
Yeah, it's pretty hard, but if you want to enter into eternal life, if you just try really hard your best by your power, you can do it. Sounds a bit Joel Joel Osteen, doesn't it? It was supposed to be a ridiculous example. Taking a big animal they were familiar with, a needle that they were familiar with, and saying, you try and put that through. That's how hard it is from a human perspective to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I spoke to the RSPCA. They've told me I can't bring in a camel and do my best to try and force it through the eye of a needle, but take my word for it, you can't do it. And now I haven't spoken to the RSPCA. (laughs) If you think, Steve, if you've had time to speak to the RSPCA about putting a camel through a needle, you could have finished your Revelation sermon. (laughs) But think about this. In the first century, it was a common thought that if someone was rich they must have had the favour of God. So imagine how this would have sounded to them to think that for a rich person to enter the kingdom, it's so impossible, it's like trying to get a camel through the eye of the needle. And this is the people which they perceive to be the people on the side and in the favour of God. So it raises the obvious question, well, if these people who seem to have the hand of God's blessing, who can be saved? If the rich can't, who we think are blessed, seems impossible. Well, Jesus actually affirms that, yeah, it is. What is impossible with man is possible and only possible with God. It's not, Jesus is not saying that it's impossible. He's saying, from a man-human perspective, you can do nothing to enter the kingdom of God. It would require as much of a miracle for a human being to enter the kingdom of God as it does to try and fit a big camel through the eye of a needle. And you know what? Every single person in this room who has come into a right relationship with God is because God has done a miraculous work to save sinners, to change our hearts, that we might see the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of what Jesus Christ has done for us, and turn us from being rebels to followers of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He says, unless one is born again, or unless one is born again from above or by the Spirit, no one's going to enter the kingdom of God. You won't even see it. You need God's work. You need a miracle. Now, good old Peter, he's never backwards in speaking up, is he? He's just heard it's hard for the rich to get in there. He's heard the command, go and sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. And so he just wants to check to make sure he's, he's doing all right. So Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Surely, surely everything's good with us. We've done that thing you just talked about. And Jesus, in his response, provides three Very firm and interesting guarantees. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one without exception who has left house or wives or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. So he says three things. There's not a single person who has given up things for the kingdom of God who will not receive more in this life and eternal life in the age to come. And you think, man, that sounds pretty good on paper, doesn't it? 
But then at the same time you think, I know lots of people who have given up much to follow Jesus Christ and their life actually looks like it's got harder. What about the Muslim who's come to faith, rejected by their family, possibly abused, maybe even killed? Surely you can't say Jesus promised that those who give up things to follow me will receive even more in this life. Now we're not talking about your prosperity sort of teaching like you sow a seed of this much and God will bless you with all this money. Even Benny Hinn's done a bit of a backflip on that one recently. Nor am I saying that giving up things for the kingdom does not mean that you will not necessarily have significant loss in this life. What I am saying is if a person gains Christ even if they lose everything as a result of following Christ, they have gained. When Jesus says, whoever gives up things to follow me will get so much more, having Christ is so much more valuable than having all of the riches and all the things in this world. So in that case, even a Muslim who would turn be persecuted and killed by their family has gained more in this life because they have gained Christ. The question then is, how much do you value Jesus? Because what it says, if you say, I've suffered loss when I've turned to Christ, then you you are saying that what I have lost was more valuable, more important to me than what Jesus was. If the only thing you have is Christ, you have much gain. Not just in this life, but eternal life in the age to come which we'll look at as we get to Revelation next week. In the presence of God forever. No pain, no sickness, no sadness. Purest form of joy forevermore. And with all of this on offer, we see the rich ruler turn his back, walk away. So as we wrap up, there's two points I want to make. One is a challenge, one is an encouragement. The first one, the challenge is, is there anything keeping you from following Christ? That call to follow Christ comes with a number of different responses. For some people, the biggest question is, can God save me? Like, I find the gospel appealing, but can God save someone who's done the things that I've done? What you'll notice when you read throughout the gospels, Jesus seems to spend so much of his time with the sort of people who would ask those questions. The people that everyone looked down upon, that the Pharisees would say, Jesus, you shouldn't go know those new, those wicked sinners. And if Jesus delights in saving a man who persecuted Christians like Paul, I think you're doing all right. If you thought that God would or could not ever be interested in saving you, you're very wrong. There were, there were some, though, who respond like the rich ruler. Like, I'll do anything for this. This is, this is wonderful. I want this. I'll even sing, I surrender all to the day I die. As long as that doesn't require me surrendering something I love. In Amy Carmichael's book, Things As They Are, she spoke about a time when she was in a conversation with a Hindu queen who wanted to know about the gospel. 
And in that book we read this quote. She knew quite enough to understand and take in the force of the forceful words. She would not consent to be led on gently. No, I must know it now, she said. And as verse by verse was read to her, her face settled sorrowfully. So far must I follow? So far, she said. I cannot follow so far. There are many who think the appeal of what Jesus Christ offers in the gospel is wonderful, but not as wonderful as something else that they love that they don't want to, and they'll place limits of how far they will go to follow Jesus. And the extent to which you say, I will or I can't give up this, is the extent to which you communicate how valuable you perceive Jesus to be, but also how valuable you perceive things of this world to be. kind of separates people between those who like the concept of Christianity and those who long to be a follower of Jesus Christ all their days of their life, that are overwhelmed that the grace of God might call them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. But even if you are already a follower of Christ, is there anything still that you are unwilling to give up for the case of following Christ? I'm not saying if there's anything you ever once felt or used to that somehow you're not a Christian. But what I am saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your desire should want to be to see the things in your life that are opposed to him to go away. Because you know they're the things that he died for. If they're so offensive to him that he had to die on a cross, why would we say, Jesus, I love you, but I want to still cling on to these things that you died on the cross for? What's it say about Jesus? What's it say about me if I can't or I won't? And secondly, by way of encouragement, know the riches you have in Christ. The rich young ruler wouldn't commit because he thought it was too much. He didn't think Jesus was worth it. But to those who committed to Jesus, Jesus promised great riches in this life and in the age to come. Know and value the one who offers you this. Everything he gives is good. James tells us every good and perfect gift comes down from the Heavenly Father within whom there's no shadow of change. And one day we can look forward to an eternity with him. No pain, suffering, death, sadness and we'll see that outlined and displayed in some of its splendour as we look at Revelation 21 next week. Know the riches that you've got. Set your eyes, set your mind, set your heart and focus on what you have got in Christ. Paul tells us through the letter to the Ephesians, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And when you know what you have, as the old song goes, the things of this world do become strangely dim. We only become attracted to the things of this world when we have a small view of who our God is. We want to be a people who confidently proclaim, if only I have Christ, I have much gain. The church I pastored down in Victoria, there was a lady there who's watched her mother die of motor neurone disease. She started to show some symptoms that were along that direction. 
And when she went to the doctor and she got tested for it, and they said, no, she was so relieved because she saw that long, drawn-out death of her mother. And then down the track, she got another diagnosis that said, actually, you do have motor neurone disease. Helen was an absolute champion. She probably raised her love for God after that diagnosis, her love for sharing the gospel by whatever means she could. Sure, she was looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face. But she was excited and she valued the one that she had right now. She wouldn't have said, I've suffered loss because I've got this diagnosis. She just wanted to know, I've got Christ. I have all I ever need. And my prayer for us is that we would love him now. We would so deeply value and cherish him now that would transform our hearts, the way we see the world around us and that would also have us excited that as we see this description next week in Revelation 21, we say, that's what I want. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we confess so often we get distracted We even find attractive and value things more highly than we should. We acknowledge that shows us something of our own heart, that we haven't cherished you enough. And that probably comes down to something more of our own heart is that we do not know the riches that we have in Christ. We don't know the fullness of the splendor of who you are, of who you've revealed yourself to be. Perhaps we've just become familiar that while we were wicked sinners destined for an eternity of punishment, you plucked us out. You gave us that miracle that we could be right in the sight of God, clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. That when we stand before you, we'll have a confidence, not upon the things that we have done, but on a confidence that rests on nothing more than what Jesus Christ has done by his complete and perfect work through his death, resurrection, and exaltation to the right hand of the Father. Thank you for what you have given us. Thank you for the wonderful future that that awaits us. Help us to hold out that wonderful, glorious future uh, before others who don't yet know you, that they may know the joy and the riches and the value of knowing Christ, that no matter what happens as they follow Christ, they can say, I have gained. Thank you for who you are and what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to move into a time of communion, which you do on every first and third. See, I had a blank there for a moment. First and third Sundays of the month, where we visually represent what Jesus has done for us. In those two elements with the Jesus has done on the cross.